Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrowcasting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Fifteenth of September, Wednesday. Dawn, filled with the scent of autumn notes. Rooks stream like smoke or falling leaves across the ragged sky, haunted by geese calls, flying east into the rising sun. This is the narrowboat 506812 Erica. Narrow casting to you wherever you are, canal side. After some relatively chilly nights, tonight's temperature seems to be holding up. The wind is light, the reeds outside are still, and only the sleepy chuckling quacks from the hunched figures of the ducks and the shriek of a far off owl, softened by the distance, break the quietness. Welcome aboard. I'm so glad you've come. A few mornings of mist and some inversion fog have given the week a really autumnal feel, although the days remain warm and some even are quite sunny. But there's a softness to the light and the sharp-edged detail of distant objects the horizon, trees in the middle distance, is often smoothed and blurred by a smoky glow. And there are the mornings of heavy dew, and fields gilded by silver cobwebs, and the cattle and sheep breath erupt in miniature cumulus clouds. Penny finds lots to sniff. And the dawn's soundscapes have shifted too. The songbirds giving way to jackdaws and rooks. And the rooks are massing once more. Those small family units into which they have divided for the summer are now dissolving into the large colonies and parliaments that are more familiar to us. And those big, noisy boisterous, rollicking, chaotic rookeries high up in the trees on autumn and winter days. Magpies seem to be everywhere. Perhaps it's the symphony of crane flies that have brought them down to the fields. And Wednesday morning the sky swooped and wheeled with swallows and martins. An intricate aerial choreography of arrowed forms missiling and storming the sky, and the strange chirruping purrs of their vocalizations. Restless nomads. And for half an hour or so, the sky boiled with this airborne calligraphy, and then they were gone. And for the past few weeks, our evenings and nights in particular have been shared with crane flies 
those gentle daddy long legs, so beautifully intricate and looking unbelievably fragile. And for some strange reason, they remind me of Buddhist prayer flags, writing prayers upon the wind and scooping their gentle tiny lives into my cupped hands and lifting them through the duck hatch into the night sky and letting them rise on their lacy wings into the darkness is as close to a metaphor for prayer than I can think. Crane flies, prayers written on the soft breezes of our night. Our pair of swans and their signet have become a little more regular in their visits again. And it's been fun to watch the signet developing its vocal repertoire. It's now expanding beyond that rather insistent whistle cheap that it had in demanding attention from its parents or from us to, to give it food. And the other day when I think I hadn't given it my my full attention, it attempted a full-blown hiss, head reared, beak wide open, learning from its parents the art of communication with other species, finding its place and securing it within the world in which it finds itself. The other day, an older adolescent swan, still in its juvenile grey, dropped in to visit. Donna and I watched it fly low over us a couple of times and then it landed quite close to us. And I'm not sure if it was the same juvenile that I mentioned the other week, but this time it was certainly not welcome and both parents adopted that rather aggressive looking warning stance neck tucked back and wings furled high. And the pen, the mother, headed it away while the, the male, the, the, the cob, stuck close to their signet. And eventually the outsider gave up and flew off. It must be a tough time for adolescent swans who have left their parents at the moment, finding safe water in which to live. And watching that lone swan fly off into what to me felt a very lonely horizon, it's tempting to be a bit annoyed at our family of swans for not allowing it to stay, forgetting their own struggles, the struggles to nest, the, the loss of the four babies, then losing that remaining signet and to be reunited, but all of that struggle. And then I read my news feeds about immigration and asylum seekers and the struggles that misplaced peoples daily encounter. And if I don't understand their action, I at least don't feel that I can comment on the ethical values of swans. And perhaps my irritation is rather misplaced on the wrong species. It's always great to hear from you and I really do appreciate you 
when you spend some time and just drop me a line. And I'm also amazed at the number of different countries and nations that listeners to this podcast come from. And don't forget, you can drop me a line by emailing me at nighttimeonstillwaters at gmail.com or just leaving a comment or a message on our Facebook page or Instagram or Twitter. And the detail, the contact details are below in the program notes. And although I wasn't too surprised, it was interesting to hear how many of you commented on Keats's Ode to Autumn and said how special that poem is. And that followed uh, a couple of photographs that I posted on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, um, which featured uh, misty mornings, misty dawns. And thank you particularly to Joe McGinn and Sue Bell and Olivia Marty. And hello to you all. And as also, uh, thank you for your comments on the photographs that I posted following last week's episode on Shruli Tunnel, the photographs that I took when we went through Shruli Tunnel, and also those archive photographs of Leggers. And uh, thank you, and I appreciate your comments. And, they, and again, hello to Carol Knight Ennis and Nancy Jean Armstrong. And hi again to Arlene, and I hope that you're journey back to Seattle goes smoothly. Tony Bell, who's an old friend and we go back a long, long time, got in touch with me about a reference I made last week to going down the canal. And was it a a formal term in the way that you get the up and down lines on a railway? And that's a really good question. And it, it got me thinking. And in all honesty, I don't know what the answer is. I don't think it is because I think the the nature of railway lines necessitates a formal designation of different tracks to avoid collisions and you don't get that on canals. But we frequently were talked about going down to Stratford or going up towards Birmingham um, and I'm not quite sure whether that's anything to do with the, the flow of water, general flow of water or whether it's geographically going north or, or whatever. I have had a look at authors like Rolt and Hollingshead and some of the early writers on the canals and they don't seem to use any formal conventions or designations in that sense. But if any of you know any better, then I'd be really interested and please get in contact with me about about that. Certainly the navigation notices now always take the compass cardinal points. So they talk about north or south or whatever, rather than going up or down. Hello also to Mark Stowe and thank you for your your support and your, your kind words. And Matthew Brusso as always and Vanessa, and thank you for your comments on Shrilly Tunnel. Thank you, that was, that was interesting. And Wayne and Amanda, and of course Wilma, and I hope you're doing well, Wilma. And Anna McKellar, June Dunn, and oh, Mark Dexter. And are you now back home? Have you finished your isolation? Um, and if so, then have a terrific break, won't you? A question that I am sometimes asked is, is there a term or a name given by people living on boats for those who live on land or in houses? And it's an interesting question. 
because names and identities can provide lots of information about the groups and the communities they represent, how they view themselves, how they view others, and also how they define themselves against the other or others. Whilst individuals may have preferred terms to self-identify as people who live aboard a boat, it's perhaps quite telling and suggestive that people who live aboard, for want of a better word, have no formal or agreed term for it. And perhaps liverboards or boaters are the closest. But that also raises questions about the different communities on the canals and the river systems and how they view themselves and interact with other communities. And it's a, a fascinating topic, and it's one I plan to do in a future episode of looking at these different little subgroups or communities that you find on the canals. However, when it comes to referring to people who live on land, there's not really any term apart from the rather prosaic and unimaginative householders or land dwellers. Perhaps the nearest we get is a term that I used last week when referring to that great cafe boat that's moored at Braunston on the Grand Union Canal, the Gongoozler's Rest. And Gongoozler is a term that has increasingly become widespread and is used to refer to people in the locality of canals or or rivers even, often at locks or bridges, that are apparently not boaters. In other words, not from the boating community. In its simplest form, a gongoozler is somebody who watches canal boats, and the inference being that they are a spectator, a non-participant, someone outside the boating community. As we will see, that is a hugely problematic assumption and, and is possibly and more likely not the case. But that's the inference that's given. It's that they're outsiders watching us. Now, I, I need to just quickly say that I am aware that the term is listed in the Urban Dictionary relating to some kind of apparently aberrant sexual activity and that a presenter on daytime television got a lot of complaints from viewers for using it but it needs to be remembered that the urban dictionary records demotic usage of words by often minority or subcultural groups or communities and these necessarily tend to either negotiate the the dominant social cultural transcript or, or, or mainstream usage, if you could use that term, and create a more nuanced meaning or subvert it altogether. And sometimes I use with students the uh, terms such as handicap or sick, which is popular in the 1990s, or, or even gay, the term gay. And as such, that dictionary is a really useful and valuable record. 
However, if you try to use it to secure a definitive meaning as if it were the Oxford English Dictionary or Webster's or something, a dictionary like that, as these viewers seem to be trying to do, then you're going to run into a lot of problems with your language and get into a real semantic mess. So I'm aware that it has other meanings and usages, but that's only used within a very small minority group. The actual definition of gongoozler or to gongoozle, if it is a verb, is usually used as a noun. And how or where it originated is unknown. And its first known appearance in print is not until 1904, so it's relatively recent. And that appeared in the glossary of Bradshaw's Canals and Navigable Rivers of England and Wales. And it stated, Gungoozler, an idle and inquisitive person who stands staring for prolonged periods at anything out of the common. The word is believed to have its origin in the Lake District of England. And in fact, that's the definition that also appears in the glossary of Tom Rolt's book, The Narrow Boat. Whilst it's not explicit in its definition, that the context with canals and waterways in both Bradshaw and Rolt do suggest an association with canals and waterways. And the next instance makes this association much clearer and firmer. Although it develops it in something of a little more sinister way. This time it's from an article entitled Life on a London Waterway that was published in the Hampshire Advertiser in July 1907. And here the, the writer states, Nearly all the bridges are lined with curious idlers, known as gongoozlers, and the habits of these persons are not nice. They insult the bargees or anyone on the boat, throwing stones or sticks and acting in other objectionable ways as the boats pass, knowing no revenge can be taken. We once witnessed a scene that delighted our hearts with its dramatic possibilities. A barge, coming slowly through an arch, was being carefully watched. Before the skipper at the stern was seen, he quietly dipped his mop into the water and stood ready. As he gradually appeared, the crowd of faces, but a few inches above, took in the position at a glance. The situation was tense with excitement, but not a sound was heard as the barge drifted slowly by. Had a movement been made, the mop would have been whirled upward, drenching the gongoozlers above. We felt almost sorry that there was no demand for its use. Some of the boatmen carry stores of smooth round stones, making good use of them should the occasion arise. Even a dump of coal has provided very effective for quietening some troublesome urchin. The extract is interesting in as much as it uses the term gongoozler, but it also reflects the more tense and sometimes fairly hostile or certainly suspicious um, relationship between the working boat community 
and those on land. The recognition that Gongusla is associated and part of the working boatman's vocabulary is recorded in the 1931 article Water Gypsies that was published in the Nottingham Evening Post. The water gypsies of the article are the, the working boat community, and the article is warning or, or mourning the apparent disappearance of these folk. And the author writes, The canal people have the monopoly of the business for a century, and it's not strange they should have evolved a language of their own. Many words like chalico, or it might be calico, jamming pole, gongoozler, Joshua and Ludl are unfamiliar to those living ashore. And so here we see, really for the first time, some concrete evidence that Gongoozler is part of the working boat's vocabulary. But unfortunately, it remains undefined. The website Word Histories provides another quite interesting example of its use in a popular context. And it appears in the storyline of a comic strip, Belinda that's published in the Daily Mirror in May 1943. And the eponymous hero, Belinda, finds herself on a working barge and the captain identifies the villain who has disguised himself as one of the gongoozlers watching the boats. Whatever its origin and original meaning, by the 1970s, and the uptake of leisure cruising, the term seems to have crept into mainstream canal vocabulary. And certainly it was when I first began to hear of it in a, in a fairly widespread way. And the thing is, it's not pejorative, or it certainly wasn't used then, and it's quite often not used now in a pejorative way. In fact, there's a widespread recognition that gongoozlers often have a deep and long-standing interest in the canals and waterways and narrowboats and barges, and probably are more knowledgeable and skilled than the boaters that they're watching. And in fact, many boaters, Donna and I included, also do a bit of gongoozling and just sitting down and watching the boats as they pass, which then raises another question. Can you gongoozle from a boat or do you have to be land-based? But whatever the case, the use of gongoozle and gongoozler is a handy and useful term to express the two communities. Different but not opposed, and for me, neatly marks and encapsulates that intersection between them with all its ambiguities, its points of commonalities and friction. That there is a sense of divide of difference between the two communities water-based and land-based is not surprising and goes back into deep history. Canals and initially rivers form the, the literal and metaphorical boundaries to the inhabited or the civilized domestic world. There were those areas that were the counterpoint to the village, the town and the city, the, the world of the settled. 
The French philosopher Foucault, in his book Madness and Civilization, explores the phenomena in medieval France and, and elsewhere of how the mentally ill, the incapacitated, the socially deviant, the village idiot, the drunk, the destitute, the unemployed and the unemployable were literally cast adrift in boats. Stultifera Narvis, the ship of fools, and that in these boats they roamed from town to town, being paid by the towns that they passed through to move on to the next town, literally cast adrift on the aquatic margins of society. And here again we meet the waterways in its guise as that liminal social borderland. And it, it was only with the decline of instances of leprosy in Europe that the monastic leper asylums began to be used to house this group of socially marginalized people and the advent of the mental law, the mad asylum emerges. And these histories and images and metaphors still run deep within our cultural veins. That freedom and the threat of the uncivilized are still the two sides that make the coin of our cultural identity and being. It's the difference between the settled and the nomad, the fixed and the free. And the cultural significance of being settled, particularly in the UK, is reflected in the central importance of having a postcode. And this is something that goes right back into our national identity. It was only in 1918 and the representation of the People Act that ownership of property as a qualification for voting was abolished and that you could vote without owning property. And so this close association with your identity as a person and as a member of society is linked with ownership of property and is a hugely important part of the British psyche in how we understand ourselves and identify ourselves. Postcode becomes our identity. Accessing health and social services requires a postcode. Even shops that have loyalty cards or whatever require postcodes. Now, there often are ways around it, but the foremost way in which we identify ourselves and establish our right of residence is through postcode, is showing that we are embedded and rooted in a plot of land. Now, I'm not saying that there is some kind of conspiracy going on. It's just that the assumption is, is that everybody is rooted to a piece of land. And that land is then demarcated and identified by its postcode. 
as a nation, while we are temperamentally averse to being labelled as numbers, we seem to be quite happy to be labelled by our postcodes. And for our existence as legitimate citizens of the nation to be determined by being identified with a particular plot of land. And again, it comes back to this almost primeval tension of nomad versus the settled. What is our true state? What is the state that we are happiest with? We have this drive and desire to be settled, but we also have this drive and desire to be free, not to be fenced in, not to be locked into plots of land. And I know that tension so well. And although boat life has ameliorated it somewhat, it's still there in me. That when I used to live in a house, I used to spend hours looking out through the window or in my head, walking and wandering the paths and badger trails through my favourite woods and hills. And however, I also am aware that when I was out, after a few hours, I also knew that almost physical longing for home, particularly acute in autumn and winter, when the lights were on in the houses I passed and the curtains were still open, and the warm, welcoming light pooling into the gloaming and turning my breath into silver, and the sodium lamps streaking the pavements with amber, and the smell of food cooking and the bubble of voices from television or radio. That desire to to fly free, to fly the wild winds wherever they would take us, to glimpse the golden meadows over the horizon. And it's tempered by that equally strong pull to nest. To curl up warm and secure, safe and dry, and listen to the moan of the cruel wind on the moorland paths that we haven't as yet even imagined. And it's never satisfied. Always that yearning for the other part of our lives. The nomad and the settler. That tension which goes back before the time civilizations began to emerge of the farmer and the hunter-gatherer, the settler and the nomad. And in that term, Gongoozler, these two communities and these two parts of ourselves is expressed so beautifully, that longing to nest and that longing to fly. Well, whatever state that you are in, whether settled or nomadic, I wish you the very best, a very restful and peaceful night. This is the Narrowboat Erica, signing off for the night. Good night. Temperature outside. 16.8 degrees Inside 21 degrees Humidity 65% Dew point 11 degrees 
Wind direction. South, southeast. Wind strength. 4 miles per hour. Barometric pressure. 1012.5 rising. Cloud cover. 76%. Cloud ceiling. 30,000 feet. Precipitation. None. Moon phase. 89.6%. Waxing gibbous. Day length. 12 hours, 32 minutes. Sunset. 1916. Skycasting. 646.